Hi, I'm Hillary Clinton, and I'm excited to be back with a new season of You and Me Both. You know, when we started this podcast, we were going through some tough times, and let's face it, we still are. But I am a firm believer we're stronger together. So please join me for more conversations with people who will make you think, make you laugh, and help us find a path forward. Listen to you and me both on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, it's Bethany Frankel, and on my podcast, Just Be With Bethany Frankel, I talk to people who have had non-traditional roots to get where they are. Each episode, you'll hear from disruptors like Matthew McConaughey, I think that day is when he goes, I was a good father to him. I raised him to have this confidence to go, I'm going my own way, I'm breaking out. Kelly Ripa. Nobody handed me anything and I fought really hard for everything I had. And so many more. Listen to my podcast, Just Be With Bethany Frankel on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The art world, it is essentially a money laundering business. The best fakes are still hanging on people's walls, you know? They don't even know or suspect that they're fakes. I'm Alec Baldwin, and this is a podcast about deception, greed, and forgery in the art world. You knew the painting was fake. Um. Listen to Art Fraud on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I loved Harlem from the first time I set foot there more than 50 years ago. It embodied all the things I love about New York City and America, with its vibrant culture, rich history, and deep artistic roots that embraced both the Jazz Age and the wonderful Harlem Renaissance. But to me, nothing characterizes Harlem, at least today, more than the food. With world-renowned restaurants offering a type of cooking that nurtures the soul as much as the body. So why am I telling you this? Because today I am truly delighted to be joined by someone who was born and bred and, as she says, buttered in Harlem. And has played a crucial role in making the neighborhood what it is today. Someone whose mouth-watering meals have earned her the unofficial title of America's Queen of Comfort Food. Melba Wilson has always known she wanted to stay close to the community she grew up in and create a dining experience for her neighbors that would make them feel like they were coming home for a good meal. After working at the legendary Sylvia's Restaurant in Harlem and launching the famous Sunday Gospel Brunch there, she decided it was time to branch out on her own. Her first restaurant, Melba's, opened its doors on 114th Street in 2005. Since then, it's become a hotspot for residents, tourists, and celebrities alike. Her menu offers Southern cuisine like fried chicken, eggnog waffles, collard greens, macaroni, and cheese. They're all country food staples that take me back to growing up in Arkansas where home cooking was an expression of love for your family, friends, and neighbors. Melba has repeatedly expressed her love for her neighbors and those who depend on the jobs her restaurants provide by looking out for them. Last year, Melba's helped establish a mobile COVID vaccination site for Harlem residents and launched the Melba's COVID-19 Employee Relief Fund, 
to provide financial relief to dozens of restaurant workers who found themselves out of work. The restaurant also provided meals to thousands of frontline and other essential workers. Melba has lent her time and services to support many good causes, including Alzheimer's research, diabetes relief, literacy and senior citizen efforts, and she's currently serving on New York City's COVID Recovery and Health Equity Task Force. So while she's known around the country from TV appearances and her own cookbook, Melba's American Comfort, it's also the way she nourishes her community that, to me, makes her one of Harlem's true points of pride. Melba, thanks for being here today. Mr. President, it is such an honor to be here with you today. You are one of my heroes and definitely a huge uh, supporter, not just of our country, but as well of Harlem. So thank you for having me. Thank you. I think for the benefit of people who maybe don't share the same roots entirely, when you say you were born, bred, and buttered in Harlem, what does that mean to you? What was it like growing up here? Wow. Well, I was was born in Harlem Hospital. (laughs) Uh, We lived on 144th Street in Harlem between Lenox Avenue and 7th Avenue, also known as uh, Adam Clayton Powell. We also lived on 137th between Lenox and 7th, right around a corner from the Renaissance Ballroom. So when I say I was born bread and buttered, bread because being raised here, but also buttered because Melba tells it's a horrible pun, a really bad joke, but that's where the buttered comes in. But when I also say buttered, it means that I was groomed here. Harlem's in my roots. It's in my spirit. Harlem is in my soul. So much of who I am today is because of the life lessons that I've learned from my community. When did you decide you wanted to be a chef? How old were you? Well, Growing up in Harlem, every summer, what we did is the day that school ended, the next day, my mom, dad, brother, sister, and I would all pack into the car, and we would take the 10, 11-hour drive to South Carolina, which is where my parents are from. And every time, the first thing I did when we arrived in South Carolina was greeted my grandparents with warm hugs, but then it was to that farm. That's where we went. And my grandmother knew that I looked forward to going to the farm with her where we picked greens, beans, potatoes, tomatoes. And watching my grandmother gather all of these ingredients and then take them into the kitchen, singing, normally church hymns, we would cook together. And whether I was snapping peas, peeling potatoes, canning tomatoes, I loved every aspect of the magic that we created in our kitchen. It was then that I actually first fell in love with cooking, with food, and with the power of food. See, every important event in our family happened over food. It happened over a meal. Whether it was the birth of a new baby or the 100th birthday and celebrating my grandmother or my great-grandmother, whether it was a marriage or, unfortunately, a repast, I noticed that food was at the center 
of everything that was important to us. So I knew I wanted to be a part of the magic. I wanted to be a part of that magic called feeding people's souls, but feeding their spirits as well. Well, you brought up a lot of old memories to me. I had uh, my grandmother's brother and his wife were sort of our family magnet when I was a little boy in Hope. And we all had to learn to shell peas and <laughs> do whatever else was necessary. I personally favored turning the crank on the ice cream machine the most because <laughs> I knew what was at the other end of that effort. Oh, yeah. But uh, I think that when you were talking about being on your grandparents' farm and how you, <clears throat> it's amazing how many people today who've never been on or around a farm, who've never planted a garden, who've never experienced this, I think sometimes they spend an unlimited number of days ordering food out and having it delivered, having <laughs> no real clue about what else is involved. And one of the things that always impressed me is that you seem to want the people who dine at your restaurants and buy your book to know that that food in front of them is part of a larger fabric of community that we should nurture and respect. That is so true. Um, you know, food was our entertainment. We come from very, very humble beginnings. And so it wasn't about going to the movies or taking an airplane trip anyplace. Food was the nucleus of everything that we did, Mr. President. So Monday through Friday, my dad worked. Saturdays and Sundays were spent at our cousin's house, my uncles, my aunts, my grandparents' homes. That's what we did. But not only did we go to visit, we brought a dish. We brought a plate. Because remember, that's bragging rights. Who makes the best tater salad? Okay? That macaroni and cheese better be creamy. And you have to see the cheese strings rise up from the plate to the top of the fork like it's going to touch the heavens and the sky. <laughs> so food is definitely, it, it was definitely a part of entertainment, but it's also a way to show love. It's a way that we nurtured each other. And it's also a vehicle, a conduit that we use to tell stories of the past. See, I never got to meet great-grandma Julia or Mambo, as my parents affectionately called her. But every time we sat down to eat, there were stories that were constantly told about my great-grandmother, Mambo. And, you know, we shared these stories over food, and it could have been a meal that she cooked. But that's how I got to tell my son the stories of his great-great-grandmother. So even though she didn't live in the present, she lives in his mind, and he knows about his lineage he knows the important part that she and the rest of our family members played, still today play in our lives. And he knows the reason that we do certain things. You know, I still like to shell peas because they take me back. And that's one of the beautiful things that food does. It transports you back to warm times and wonderful memories. Ooh. When you decided to open your own restaurant, it wasn't in the best of times. It was just a couple of years after 9-11. And tell us when you decided that it, the time had come for you to have your own place and how you made the decision. 
Mr. President, that was a tough time. It was shortly after 9-11, where I worked with Chef Michael LaMonaco, formerly from the 21 Club. Uh, Chef LaMonaco was at Windows on the World, and I worked there with him every Sunday. And um, I was there September 9th. You know, my band performed there September 9th, September 10th. I was sitting in a meeting with David Emile and Michael LaMonaco renegotiating our contract. And September, you know, I, I, I got the call that Tuesday. I'll never forget. So that was a devastating time for us. Um, I was on a flight one day, and I heard a flight attendant say, in case of an emergency, put on your masks first. Now, we've heard this hundreds of times before, but on this day, it resonated with me. It wasn't, I had an epiphany, and with my mom being from the South, she'd always saved up money under her mattress. So, you know, we emulate what we see our parents do, right? So every Friday when I got paid, I'd put a little five spot. Sometimes, Mr. President, it was a one spot, okay? <laughs> it was whatever little extra I had made for the week, I'd put it under my mattress. So when I heard the flight attendant say that, I said, well, let me see how much money I have under my mattress. I don't want to wake up one day and go, what about me? I love my community. Harlem at that time was ridden with drugs. 114th Street in Frederick Douglass was one of the most drug-ridden blocks in Harlem. I wanted it to change. So I figured I could talk about it or I could be about it. Started counting that money and counting and counting. Then I got scared because it was a whole lot of money. <laughs> I had amassed a very, very small fortune and I decided to take that and invest it into my community. I had been married, gotten divorced, so I was a single mom with a child, and we're living in Harlem, and I wanted to see my community change and decided to invest in this corner that was right across the street from the uh, heavy drug neighborhood and try to see if I can invoke change, if I could evoke change, and so I did. Melba's has been such a blessing to me because I was able to take, I am able to take people from my community, give them jobs, skills. And right now I, I'm at 41 employees. And it's great because 98.2% of those employees live within the Harlem community. So to be able to work here, earn a living here, to take that money and then go back and recirculate it in our community is how we are able to have some sense of economic empowerment. That's terrific. I, I wonder if you feel comfortable just telling us what did COVID do to your business and how did you deal with it? Oh, COVID. COVID. You know, it's still unbelievable. The day was March 16th, 2020. I was scheduled to open up a new restaurant <laughs> the end of March. And we had heard that the city was going to be shut down. But I'm like, this is New York. New York is a city that never sleeps. How are we about to be shut down? To be very candid with you, I didn't believe it was going to happen. I didn't believe New York City was going to be shut down. The call came March 16th. I immediately called my employees in. 
And even though I'm the only, I have no partners and no investors, it's just me, my employees, I consider them my partners and my investors because there's no way I could run this business successfully without them. So I figured if this was going to be a hard decision that we had to make it together. The call was that the city was going to shut down and restaurants could only do takeout. Now, remember, we're a restaurant that thrives on sit down. Did we do takeout? Yes, we did. Did we do catering? Yes. But we didn't know how we were going to fare. After meeting with my staff, they all agreed that they wanted to stay open. But we started brainstorming. We changed our hours from 5 to 11 to 12 to 12. So that allowed us to keep more people working. And it was a scary day, Mr. President. Now, we're around food all day, every day. All of a sudden, I can't tell you if you can feed your family, how long this is going to last, when it's going to end. And so it wasn't about me. It was about my family members. And I had no answers. And that's one of the few times in my life that I could not give answers. And that frightened me. That worried me. That saddened me. Because... I had 39 people that depended on me to take care of their families, and I had no answers. We pivoted. As you know, we went from being the epicenter for new cases, hearing the, and seeing the horrific stories about trailers being filled with bodies of loved ones. Um, just saying it now is still devastating. I'm the president of the New York City Hospitality Alliance, first female president and first person of color to ever hold this position. And we all came together as an industry. We did not want food to be an issue. So we decided to feed frontline workers. We decided to feed police officers. We decided to feed people off the street that could no longer feed their families. We also decided to feed restaurant workers We invited restaurant workers to come in and just get bags of groceries that we'd filled out. This was good for them, but it was also good for us because we were stressed. We were saddened. We were disheartened. We were broken. And we didn't know what the end was going to bring. And uh, how long did you feed other people, the people that were involved in dealing with the pandemic? Probably from the second week. From the second week it started... So my advertising budget, since I've opened, since 2005, has always gone back into feeding the community. It's not something that I publicize, but it's something that we do all the time, from seniors to kids that deal with literacy issues. So that was a natural progression for us. During the election time, we went to the polls and we fed people standing in line that were waiting to vote. We gave them water and and sandwiches that we had made for them. We gave fried chicken and, you know, fried chicken sandwiches. But that's what we do. We use food as a conduit to bring people together, especially during tough times. And that's what we did during the pandemic. We uh, stopped counting at about a little over 200,000 people. So I'm not sure how many in total, but we know it was well over 200,000. We'll be right back. Hi, 
it's Bethany Frankel, and on my podcast, Just Be With Bethany Frankel, I talk to people who have had non-traditional roots to get where they are. Pretty much a started from the bottom, now they're here story. These are the people I'm curious about and want to have real conversations with. I'm not asking things that you've heard already that are just regurgitated nonsense. It's not just for people to come on here and promote a book. I want to hear what they think about different things. I want to hear how they made it big. Each episode, you'll hear from disruptors like Matthew McConaughey. And I think that day is when he goes, I was a good father to him. I raised him to have this confidence to go, I'm going my own way, I'm breaking out. Kelly Ripa. Nobody handed me anything and I fought really hard for everything I had. Sammy Hagar. I didn't realize I was really building a brand. No one told wow. me that you're building a brand. And so many more. Listen to my podcast, Just Be With Bethany Frankel on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The art world, it is essentially a money laundering business. The best fakes are still hanging on people's walls, you know. They don't even know or suspect that they're fakes. I'm Alec Baldwin, and this is a podcast about deception, greed, and forgery in the art world. I just walked in and saw this bright red painting presuming to be a Rothko. Of course, art forgeries only happen because there's money to be made. A lot of money. I'm listening to how what they're paying for these things. It was incredible amounts of money. You knew the painting was fake. Um. Listen to Art Fraud on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Hillary Clinton, and I'm so excited to be back with a third season of You and Me Both. When I started this podcast, we were going through some tough times, and let's face it, we still are. And here's what I know. We cannot get through this alone. So please join me for more conversations with people who will make you think, make you laugh, and help us find a path forward. This season, I'll be talking about the state of our democracy with experts and with people organizing on the ground. We'll draw inspiration from some amazing people like Olympic star Allison Felix and Grammy Award winner Brandi Carlisle. And we'll get into the hard stuff with writer Cheryl Strayed and my dear friend and colleague Huma Abedin. So join us, listen to you and me both on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Tell us a little about your work on the Mayor's COVID Recovery and Health Equity Task Force. And how are you doing with Mayor Adams and what do you think he ought to do now? Well, we're, we're super excited to have Mayor Adams as the mayor of this amazing city. We think that his presence is definitely needed. Someone of his stature and a man of his belief, especially during these times. My grandmother used to say, God, Melby, God gave us two ears so that we can listen twice as much as we speak. And that's what Mayor Eric Adams does. He listens to the constituents. He listens to the over 8 million people that live in this city. And um, he makes his decisions based on that. So he has a lot of work cut out for him, as well as his work with small businesses. The fact that he has four co-chairs and that one of them 
deals specifically with small businesses, I think is important. And it shows that he is committed to our plight and our involvement within our small communities in this city of New York, the greatest city in the world. I really wanted you to make your small business plug because I think that it's easy to lose sight of in New York because of its all the financial centers here and because, but it's very important not to forget, you know, that most people still work for small businesses in New York City as well as in the country, and it's important. You're 100% correct, Mr. President. Small businesses are the economic engines that drive our cities. So in order for New York City to come back, small businesses have to come back. How do we do that? Well, first of all, the rent is too darn high. It has to be affordable for us to come back. There's a plethora of vacant spaces. Every time I drive around this city, I've never in my life seen this many vacant spaces. So they're sitting there vacant. And one of the things that we're talking about right now is how do we make these vacant spaces available for small business owners? They need to be a hub for small business owners to come in, operate our businesses. And what do we do by doing that? We employ people within these communities. It is a win-win situation. Those dollars in turn then recirculate back into our communities and we pay what? Taxes, which benefits the city. Just keep singing that song. We have to keep working at, at uh, as you've pointed out, 26,000 other people like you who feed people in New York City. And with a mayor who seems genuinely interested in all this, I hope you'll come up with some good answers because we don't know where work is going. We don't know where artificial intelligence is going. We don't know whether there are some businesses that will never again operate the way they did having people come in for eight hours every day. But we know one thing. People will, if given the chance, keep going out to eat because, as you pointed out, it's a form of entertainment by people who can't even afford to go to the movies, much less go on vacation. So I I hope you'll stay at that because I really believe that it's important. Mr. President, I, I so agree with you about that. You know, the food and beverage industry is the second largest private employer in this country, literally in the country. It's not the automobile industry. It's not the airline industry. It is the food and beverage industry. So when you think about F&B, food and beverage, it's so much more than just a restaurant. But when a restaurant closes its doors, it's such a layered effect. Let's break it down. It's the produce farmer, right? It's your fishmonger. It's your beef. It's your meat. It's also the paper goods supplier, It's the vineyard that we're hurting. It's the truck driver that drives the goods from one place to another. So we employ so many different people. And in New York City alone, it's over 300,000 jobs. That's a lot of jobs. So we are integral. We're an integral part to this city coming back. Good for you. Just stay after it. I, I think we've got a good chance. And uh, I know how frustrating dealing with COVID has been. And it's been equally frustrating for people around the world. You can see this reading in every country. Should we open up? Should we not? If we do, what are the And I think you have hit the sweet spot because you've done so much to support 
people getting vaccinated. And we know that getting the vaccination and the booster, even if it doesn't stop a new variant like this Omicron, it almost always keeps people out of the hospital, off of a ventilator, out of a mortuary. Yes. And I think it's very, very important uh, that we keep that in people's minds. I think if you want to bring back open businesses and keep them open, we can't be seen as spreaders of an epidemic. You know, we've got to see as, be seen as people that are dealing with these things and they come up quickly and minimizing the danger. And I think you've got to do that, which I appreciate very much. Thank you. Thank you. But I also agree if you want to live, if you want to live, being vaccinated is the difference between living and not living. I can tell you stories among stories of people that I know that have died simply because they were not vaxxed, literally for no other reason than because they weren't vaxxed. And it's disheartening that, as you stated, Mr. President, we still have people that are reluctant about getting vaccinated. I'm about to host another Vax rally, and that's one of the things we're talking about. We do Vax 101 to to be or not to be. I have doctors there to talk to them, and I also have people that look like us, because oftentimes it's a lot of people in my community. Let's, if we're going to talk, Mr. President, let's talk. It's people that look like me oftentimes. And I'm vaxxed, I'm vaxxed, I'm boosted. I'm, I put the B on the vax and call it vax. That's boosted and vaxxed. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm here to tell the story. And I had COVID. I had it in the early stages. And it was um, right before I did the 60 Minutes piece. And uh, I've never felt anything like that before in my life. That was in March of 2020. Never felt anything like that before in my life. And uh, thought I was going to die. And so I don't want anybody else to experience that feeling. More after this. It's Bethany Frankel, and on my podcast, Just Be With Bethany Frankel, I talk to people who have had non-traditional routes to get where they are. Pretty much a started from the bottom, now they're here story. These are the people I'm curious about and want to have real conversations with. I'm not asking things that you've heard already that are just regurgitated nonsense. It's not just for people to come on here and promote a book. I want to hear what they think about different things. I want to hear how they made it big. Each episode, you'll hear from disruptors like Matthew McConaughey. And I think that day is when he goes, I was a good father to him. I raised him to have this confidence to go, I'm going my own way, I'm breaking out. Kelly Ripa. Nobody handed me anything and I fought really hard for everything I had. Sammy Hagar. I didn't realize I was really building a brand. No one told wow. me that you're building a brand. And so many more. Listen to my podcast, Just Be With Bethany Frankel on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Hillary Clinton, and I'm so excited to be back with a third season of You and Me Both. When I started this podcast, we were going through some tough times, and let's face it, we still are. And here's what I know. We cannot get through this alone. 
So please join me for more conversations with people who will make you think, make you laugh, and help us find a path forward. This season, I'll be talking about the state of our democracy with experts and with people organizing on the ground. We'll draw inspiration from some amazing people like Olympic star Allison Felix and Grammy Award winner Brandi Carlisle. And we'll get into the hard stuff with writer Cheryl Strayed and my dear friend and colleague Huma Abedin. So join us, listen to you and me both on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The art world, it is essentially a money laundering business. The best fakes are still hanging on people's walls, you know. They don't even know or suspect that they're fakes. I'm Alec Baldwin, and this is a podcast about deception, greed, and forgery in the art world. I just walked in and saw this bright red painting presuming to be a Rothko. Of course, art forgeries only happen because there's money to be made. A lot of money. I'm listening to how what they're paying for these things. It was incredible amounts of money. You knew the painting was fake. Um. Listen to Art Fraud on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Tell me where you think we'll be with all this in five years. Where do you think we're going to be with the economy, with small business? If you could write your own story for the next five years, where would your business be? Mm, Good question. Well, I think that there were some lessons that came out of COVID, right? COVID taught us that people really do need people (laughs) and uh, the importance of the simple things in life. The importance of just going out to take a walk, the importance of checking on our neighbors. Because I think to some point, a lot of us forgot about the little things, you know? So that's what COVID for me personally taught me to step back, take a minute, and relax. I think in, as New Yorkers, um, it's all about the race. We walk fast, we talk fast, we move fast, we do everything fast. COVID made me slow down, take a look, dip my foot in the pool. The water's not so cold. I also think that COVID taught a lot of people how to get into their creative mind, their creative sense, and to understand that we are our brothers and sisters keepers. I think it humanized us in a way that, and I dare to say this, that was oddly beautiful and simplistic. I know the way that we look at the food and beverage industry is different. There's no longer small things like front of the house versus back of the house. We're all one house. It didn't really matter if you were a big restaurant or a small restaurant. A lot of us suffered together. So we were able to support each other. We have to ensure that this does not happen again. We have to be proactive. But I also think that we have to look at us as truly the melting pot that we say we are. I think we have to become that melting pot. You know, when I think about George Floyd and what that meant and did, 
not just to our city, to our country. We have to make sure that situations like those don't happen again. You know, I'm a, I'm a mom of a 6'10", 22-year-old young man, and I can tell you, when he walks out the front door, I'm always concerned about him because even though my son is a gentle giant, because he's a black man at 6'10", that is never oftentimes not seen. So I'm hoping that we look at each other in a more humble way, in a more caring way, and realize the importance and understand that we need each other. I also think that as a city, we have to look at the homeless issue within our city, as well as understand and say it out loud so that we can deal with the fact that we have a problem with mental health. Not talking about it is not, it doesn't mean that it doesn't exist and it's not going to go away because we don't talk about it. We must address the issue of mental health as well as there's a drug epidemic going on in our city. So these are hard questions, hard issues, hard problems. However, when I walk out of the doors of Melba's on 114th Street and Frederick Douglass Boulevard, I look to my right. There's an amazing statue at 110th Street. And this statue is of a man named Frederick Douglass. Mr. President, when I look to my left, there's another amazing monument built to the queen herself with the roots extending from the hems of her garment. And that is the one and only Harriet Tubman. I think about the trials, the tribulations that Frederick Douglass, Harriet Tubman, and so many others have endured. And it is on their shoulders that I get my hope and my strength. And I know and believe and declare that this great city, with all of us working together and working hand in hand, shall stand again. As New York, New York, so nice that they had to name it twice. <laughs> I've never heard that. That's great. <laughs> you should have been with me when I was in politics. You could have made a fortune as a speechwriter. <laughs> <laughs> Run again, Mr. President. I got you. <laughs> oh, let's close with something that I've really been impressed with. And that is that uh, every year you come up with a word, you make a conscious effort to implement. One year it was the word kinder. Another year it was pivot. I read what you said about where you got the pivot idea. So what's the word this year and what are you doing with it? Wow. So you, my staff, they're the only ones that know that. So someone on my team had to tell you that. Ratted you um, out. <laughs> uh-huh, they ratted me out. Yeah, I do come up with a word. And this year, my word is togetherness. Because together, we are stronger. And the only way that we're going to get through this is by standing strong together. So that's my word this year is togetherness. It's the right word. 
If there's one thing that I'm concerned about is the large number of people who now seem to believe that our differences are all that matter. In fact, our differences do matter. They're important. I mean, that's what allows debate. That's what allows progress. That's what allows learning. But in order for us to be stronger together, which we clearly are, that was the slogan of Hillary's campaign. I know. But in order for us to be stronger together, we have to believe that our common humanity is more important than our interesting differences. And in a world where, you know, we're used to these quick retweets and clicks and, you know, people arguing over the social media, it's easy to forget that. And I think that in a funny way, someone like you who spent her life feeding the mind and the soul as well as the body, uh, you're in a unique position to remind us. So here she is, Melba Wilson, going from kinder to pivot to together. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Mr. President. I so appreciate you. Thanks. Why Am I Telling You This is a production of iHeartRadio, the Clinton Foundation, and At Will Media. Our executive producers are Craig Manassian and Will Monati. Our production team includes Jameson Katsufis, Tom Galton, Sarah Horowitz, and Jake Young, with production support from Liz Raftery and Josh Farnham. Original music by Watt White. Special thanks to John Sykes, John Davidson, Angel Urena, Corey Gansley, Kevin Thurm, Oscar Flores, and all our dedicated staff and partners at the Clinton Foundation. Hi, this is Bill Clinton. I hope you're enjoying Why Am I Telling You This? I started the Clinton Foundation on the belief that everyone deserves a chance to succeed. Everyone has a responsibility to act, and we all do better when we work together. In the more than 20 years since the Foundation first opened its doors in Harlem, we've brought people together across traditional divides to address some of the most complex and pressing challenges of our time. The need for cooperation has never been more urgent than it is now. The COVID-19 pandemic has ripped the cover off longstanding inequities and vulnerabilities across our global community and here at home. The existential threat of climate change grows every day. And all around the world, the forces of division are tugging at the fabric of our common humanity. That's why this year we're relaunching the Clinton Global Initiative's annual meeting in New York in September, bringing together heads of state and other government officials, leaders of NGOs and philanthropic organizations, prominent voices in business, labor, and finance, and youth leaders and grassroots activists to drive progress on inclusive economic growth and recovery, climate resilience, and health equity. While the challenges we face are steep, our work has always been about what we can do, not what we can't do. And by bringing diverse partners together to take action and achieve real results, we can create a culture of possibility in a world hungry for hope. I hope you'll take a moment to share your thoughts and ideas with us and learn more about our work by visiting www.clintonfoundation.org podcast. Thank you. The art world, it is essentially a money laundering business. The best fakes are still hanging on people's walls. You know, they don't even know or suspect that they're fakes. I'm Alec Baldwin, and this 
is a podcast about deception, greed, and forgery in the art world. You knew the painting was fake. Um. Listen to Art Fraud on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Hillary Clinton, and I'm excited to be back with a new season of You and Me Both. You know, when we started this podcast, we were going through some tough times, and let's face it, we still are. But I am a firm believer we're stronger together. So please join me for more conversations with people who will make you think, make you laugh, and help us find a path forward. Listen to You and Me Both on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's Bethany Frankel, and on my podcast, Just Be With Bethany Frankel, I talk to people who have had non-traditional roots to get where they are. Each episode, you'll hear from disruptors like Matthew McConaughey. I think that day is when he goes, I was a good father to him. I raised him to have this confidence to go, I'm going my own way, I'm breaking out. Kelly Ripa. Nobody handed me anything, and I fought really hard for everything I had. And so many more. Listen to my podcast, Just Be With Bethany Frankel, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.